the true prophecies or prognostications of michael nostradamus physician to henry the second francis the second and charles the ninth kings of france and one of the most excellent astronomers that ever were century one the first fifty quatrains this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. 1. Sitting by night in my secret study alone, resting upon the brazen stool, a slight flame breaking forth out of that solitude makes me utter what is not in vain to believe. 2. With rod in hand, set in the middle of the branches, with water I wet the limb and the foot. In fear I writ, quaking in my sleeves, divine splendor the divine sitteth by three when the litter shall be overthrown by a gust of wind and faces shall be covered with cloaks the commonwealth shall be troubled with a new kind of men then white and red shall judge amiss four in the world shall be one monarch who shall be not long alive nor in peace then shall be lost the fishing boat and be governed with worse detriment five they shall be driven away without great fighting those of the country shall be more grieved town and city shall have greater debate carcass narbonne shall have their heart tried six the eye of ravenna shall be forsaken when the wing shall rise at his feet the two bessia shall have constituted turin versil which the french shall tread upon seven one coming too late the execution shall be done the wind being contrary and letters intercepted by the way the conspirators fourteen of a sect by the red-haired man the undertaking shall be made eight how often taken o solar city shalt thou be changing the barbarian and vain laws thy evil groweth nigh thou shalt be more tributary the great adria shall recover thy veins nine from the east shall come the african heart to vex adria and the heirs of romulus accompanied with the libyan fleet Malites shall tremble and the neighboring islands be empty ten sergeants sent into an iron cage where the seven children of the king are the old men and fathers shall come out of hell and before they die shall see the death and cries of their fruit eleven the motion of the sense heart feet and hands shall agree naples leon sicily swords fires waters then to the noble romans dipped killed dead by a weak brain twelve within a little while a false frail brute shall go from low to high being quickly raised by reason that he shall have the government of verona shall be unfaithful and slippery thirteen the banished by choler and intestine hatred shall make against the king a great conspiracy they shall put secret enemies in the mine and the old his own against them sedition fourteen from slavish people songs tunes and requests being kept prisoners by princes and lords 
for the future by headless idiots shall be admitted by divine prayers fifteen mars threatens us of a warlike force seventy times he shall cause blood to be shed the flourishing and ruin of the clergy and by those who will hear nothing from them sixteen the sixth of the fifth pond journeyed to sagittarius in the highest og of the exaltation plague famine death by a military hand the age groweth near to its renovation seventeen during forty years the rainbow shall not appear during forty years it shall be seen every day the parched earth shall wax drier and drier and great floods shall be when it shall appear eighteen through the discord and negligence of the french a passage shall be open to mohammed the land and sea of siena shall be bloody the folk and haven shall be covered with sails and ships nineteen when serpents shall come to encompass the air the trojan blood shall be vexed by spain by them a great number shall perish chief runneth away and is hid in the rushes of the marasbees twenty tours orleans blois angers rennes and nantes cities vexed by a sudden change by strange languages tents shall be set up rivers darts rennes land and sea shall quake twenty one a deep white clay feedeth a rock which clay shall break out of the deep like milk in vain people shall be troubled not daring to touch it being ignorant that in the bottom there is a milky clay twenty two that which shall live and shall have no fence the lion shall destroy the art of it autumn chalons langres and both sins the war and the ice shall do great harm twenty three in the third month of the rising of the sun the boar and leopard in marth camp to fight the leopard weary lifts his eyes to the heaven and seeth an eagle playing about the sun twenty four in the new city for to condemn a prisoner the bird of prey shall offer himself to heaven after the victory the prisoners shall be forgiven after cremona and manteau have suffered many troubles twenty five lost found again hidden so great a while a pastor as demigod shall be honored and before the moon endeth her great age by other winds he shall be dishonored twenty six the great man falleth by the lightning in the daytime an evil foretold by a common porter according to this foretelling another falleth in the night a fight at rheims and the plague at london and tuscany twenty seven under the oak goyen strucken from heaven not far from it is the treasure hidden which hath been many ages a gathering being found he shall die the eye put out by a spring twenty eight the tower of bulk shall in fear of a barbarian fleet for a while and long after afraid of spanish shipping flocks peoples goods both shall receive great damage 
taurus and libra oh what a deadly feud twenty nine when the fish that is both terrestrial and aquatic by a strong wave shall be cast upon the sand with his strange fearful sweet horrid form soon after the enemies will come near to the walls by sea thirty the outlandish ship by a sea-storm shall come near the unknown haven notwithstanding the signs given to it with bowels it shall die be plundered a good advice come too late thirty one so many years the war shall last in france beyond the course of the custolan marquis the uncertain victory three great ones shall crown the eagle the cock the moon the lion having the sun in its mark thirty two the great empire shall soon be translated into a little place which shall soon grow afterwards an inferior place of a small country in the middle of which he shall come to lay down his sceptre thirty three the great bridge near a spacious plain the great lion by caesarian forces shall cause to be pulled down without the rigorous city for fear of which the gates shall be shut to him thirty four the birds of prey flying to the window before battle shall appear to the french one shall take a good omen of it the other a bad one the weaker part shall hold it for a good sign thirty five the young lion shall overcome the old one in martial field by a single duel in a golden cage he shall put out his eye two wounds from one then he shall die a cruel death thirty six the monarch shall too late repent for he hath not put to death his adversary but he shall give his consent to a greater thing than that which is to put to death all his adversary's kindred thirty seven a little before the sun setteth a battle shall be given a great people shall be doubtful of being soiled the seaport maketh no answer a bridge and sepulchre shall be in two strange places thirty eight the sun and the eagle shall appear to the victorious a vain answer shall be made good to the vanquished by no means arms shall not be stopped vengeance maketh peace by death he then accomplisheth it thirty nine by night in the bed the chief one shall be strangled for having too much suborned fair elect by three the empire's subrogate exankle he shall put him to death reading neither card nor packet forty the false troop dissembling their folly shall make in byzance an alteration of laws one shall come out of egypt who will have untied the edict changing the coin and a lay forty one a siege laid to a city and assaulted by night few escaped a fight not far from the sea a woman swoundeth for joy to see her son returned a poison hidden in the fold of letters forty two the tenth of the calends of april gothic account raised up again by malicious persons the fire put out 
a diabolic assembly shall seek for the bones of damant and pelin forty three before the change of the empire cometh there shall happen a strange accident a field shall be changed and a pillar of prophyry shall be transported upon the chalky rock forty four within a little while sacrifices shall come again opposers shall be put to martyrdom there shall be no more monks abbots or novices honey shall be much dearer than wax forty five follower of sex great troubles to the messenger a beast upon the theatre prepareth the scenical play the inventor of that wicked fact shall be famous by sex the world shall be confounded and schismatic forty six near auc lector and mirandi a great fire from heaven shall fall three nights together a thing shall happen stupendous and wonderful a little while after the earth shall quake forty seven the sermons of the lemon lake shall be troublesome some days shall be reduced into weeks then into months then into year then they shall fail the magistrates shall condemn their vain laws forty eight twenty years of the reign of the moon being past seven thousands years another shall hold his monarchy when the sun shall reassume his days past this is fulfilled and endeth my prophecy forty nine a great while before these doings those of the east by the virtue of the moon in the year seventeen hundred shall carry away great droves and shall subdue almost the whole northern corner fifty from the aquatic triplicity shall be born one that shall make thursday his holiday his fame praise reign and power shall grow by land and sea and a tempest to the east end of the first fifty quatrains of the true prophecies or prognostications of michael nostradamus fifteen hundred and three to fifteen sixty six published in sixteen seventy two translated by theophilus de garanceres doctor in physic college london another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A Guide to the Giant's Causeway by Anonymous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Guide to the Giant's Causeway, being a supplement to the second volume of the Dublin Penny Journal, 1834. Having in a recent number of our journal, when describing the beauties of the county of Wicklow, the Dargle, the Waterfall, the Devil's Glen, the Meeting of the Waters, etc., 
promised in some future journal to conduct the reader along the Antrim coast, lest any purchaser of the present volume might suppose we had failed in redeeming our pledge, we determined on giving in a supplementary number, with the title and index to the volume, a brief though faithful guide to the Giant's Causeway, illustrated by accurate sketches by Nicol of several of the most striking views to be met with in the route from Belfast to that stupendous and extraordinary work of nature. That nothing can exceed in grandeur and boldness the scenery which occasionally bursts on the view of the traveller along the entire of this line has been generally admitted by all who have travelled it. The road is hilly in the extreme, but it presents one continued scene of fine, bold, picturesque maritime landscape, the rocks in some places rising into precipitous cliffs, jutting headlands, noble promontories, and again, sloping down into beautiful bays and quiet harbours the prospect to the right being one continued sea-view, with the Scottish coast, the Isle of Arran, and other lesser islands in the distance, that to the left pleasingly diversified, with hill and valley, here a spot well cultivated and occupied with comfortable cottages, and this again succeeded by a barren mountain with scarcely a cabin, even of the most miserable description, to show that it is inhabited by beings of the human kind. The entire line divided into nearly equal distances, which lie close along the coast and which may be thus laid down. About ten miles from Belfast is the ancient town of Carrickfergus. Beyond this, about eleven miles, the town of Larne. Twelve three-quarters further on, Glenarm. Twelve three-quarters more, Cushendall. Fifteen and a quarter, Ballycastle. And thence to the causeway, twelve and three-quarter miles. In all, 75 miles English measure from Belfast. Of the inhabitants along the coast, it may be sufficient to say that, although in general very superstitious, they are a well-conducted, harmless people, rather well-informed, intelligent, and obliging to strangers. Glenarm Castle As the entire line of coast from the town of Belfast to the plain of the causeway does not present a more picturesque object than the castle of Glenarm with its surrounding scenery, we have chosen it as the frontispiece for our volume. In approaching the little town or village, which gives its title to the castle, the road will be found very hilly and difficult of access. But the summit once gained, the inland scene immediately changes to one of a most interesting kind. The beautiful little village of Glenarm, containing nearly 200 neat whitened cottages, appears romantically situated by the shore in a deep ravine or sequestered glen being closed in on either side by lofty hills and washed by the silver waters of a mountain stream, on the opposite bank of which, in a commanding situation, stands the ancient castle, which for many years was the residence of the Antrim family. In another direction, a finely wooded glen is observed, leading to the little deer park, a place of singular construction and well-deserving the attention of the curious traveller. It is bounded at one side by the sea, whose waters have hollowed it into caves and archways, and at the other by a natural wall of solid basalt, rising 200 feet high, which is as perpendicular and regular as the fortifications of a city, and presents a more impassable barrier than could possibly be raised by the hands of man. From this point there is an exceedingly fine prospect of the coast and surrounding country. The castle is a stately ancient pile, still bearing in its appearance something of the character of a baronial castle of the fifteenth century. The approach to it is by a lofty barbican, standing on the northern extremity of the bridge. 
Passing through this, a long terrace overhanging the river and confined on the opposite side by a lofty embattled curtain wall leads through an avenue of ancient lime trees to the principal front of the building, the appearance of which from this approach is very impressive. Lofty towers, terminated with cupolas and vanes, occupy the angles of the building. The parapets are crowned with gables decorated with carved pinnacles and exhibiting various heraldic ornaments. The domain is well wooded and rather extensive. In the cemetery connected with the church are the ruins of an ancient monastery of Franciscan friars, but they are not of such a description as to afford matter for investigation to any traveller. From Glenarm to Cushendal From Glenarm to Cushendal, a distance of 13 miles, is a most interesting drive. Quitting the former village, there is a fine view of the shore and coast as far as Garin Point, distant about five miles. Passing Stradecale, a small fishing village but a short way from Glenarm, the widely extended valley of Glensile presents itself, and not far from this, the village of Kernlach. Although the land along the entire line from Glenarm to Cushendal is poor, and with a few exceptions, badly cultivated, yet the poorer classes do not appear to be suffering under that extreme wretchedness which is visible in some more fertile districts of the country. From Kernlach to Drumnasol, and thence to Garin Point, nothing can exceed the romantic beauty and variety of the scenery. On the one side of an elevated hill, in the midst of a beautiful and extensive plantation, the mansion house of Alexander Turnley, Esquire, attracts the notice of the traveller. A short distance from this, a neat and rather fanciful schoolhouse, erected by that gentleman, makes its appearance. And a little way further on, the ruins of a small ancient chapel, while on the opposite side of the road is seen the lodge of Knappen, romantically situated amid a grove of trees, and again, but a short distance from this, and in the immediate vicinity of Garin Point, on an acute, prominent headland, elevated nearly 300 feet above the seashore, on which it stands, is the Rock of Dunmall, on the summit of which are the remains of an ancient fort, having various entrenchments. This may be easily gained from the land side, and from it there is a grand and extensive prospect. Footnote. Oral history states that in olden time all the rents of Ireland were paid at this place, and that the last Danish invaders embarked from here. End of footnote. From this point also the traveller will perceive that the scenery so peculiar to the Causeway coast begins more fully to develop itself. The various strata of which the entire line of coast is composed may now readily be traced, even by the most inexperienced in such matters. As our limits will not permit us to give a regular or minute description of many things well worthy of observation, in traveling from this to the causeway, we would merely observe in a general way that along the entire coast of the sublime and stupendous, the wonderful and the grand, the tourist will find no deficiency. And while there can be no question that the plain of the causeway itself presents one of the most curious and extraordinary objects that can possibly be conceived, the varied view which meets the eye while passing along the coast would by many be considered as possessing much more to interest and attract admiration than even in the structure of the pillared pavement itself. The traveller must now, however, push forward along the coast, passing through the hamlet of Waterfoot, the villages of Cushendal, Cushendun, and the small town of Ballycastle. From Cushendal to Ballycastle, Turnley's Road, Clofistuken. After passing Garin Point, Tourists had formerly to proceed by a road called the Foreign Path, which from the extreme rapidity of the descent was nearly impassable by carriages. 
This has sometimes since been remedied by Francis Turnley, Esquire, to whose patriotism and liberality the traveller is indebted for an excellent road, cut at great expense and with much labour, out of the side of the mountain, along the edge of the coast, here and there immense masses of limestone being left in detached and threatening attitudes, which present an appearance quite in keeping with the general character of the entire scene. A little to the right, on the shore, an extraordinary figure is seen, called Klofistuken, also formed of a huge limestone rock, and at one period supposed to be the most northern point of Ireland. Fairhead and Carrickareed To the stupendous promontory of Benmore, or Fairhead, as it is more generally called, which lies between three and four miles from Ballycastle, and which is the most majestic headland to be seen along the entire line, the traveller must next direct his attention. And as many persons, in their anxiety to reach the causeway, are induced to pay but little attention to this part of the coast, it may be well here to mention that the basaltic area of the causeway shore may be considered as extending from Ballycastle to Solomon's Porch at McGilligan, that portion of it denominated par excellence the causeway, lying between Portrush and the western point of Bengor Head. And while it must be admitted that there is much of beauty and sublimity in the various ports and promontories in that division of the coast, as well as in the pillared pavement of the causeway itself, still we incline to think that although not frequently visited, nor much known among strangers, the precipitous façade from Ballycastle to Ballantoy will be considered by many to be fully as beautiful, as stupendous, and as well-deserving of attention as any other portion of this remarkable place. Here we have to observe that three of the most magnificent and extraordinary objects in this range of scenery, Fairhead, Carrickareed, and Ben-Gore, can only be seen to advantage from the water. The tourist may, indeed, get sidelong glimpses of them from various points of land along the edge of the cliffs, but to see them in all their beauty and sublimity, in all their grandeur and variety, they must be viewed from the water and at a little distance. For this purpose, boats may be readily procured at Ballycastle. From this point, also, the island of Rathlin, about eight miles distant and directly opposite, may be visited. The promontory of Fairhead rises perpendicularly to the height of 631 feet above the level of the sea. On approaching its summit, the tourist will perceive two small lakes, Loch Du and Loch Nacrana, and, near to the highest point, a curious cave, said to have been a Pict's house. The view from this headland is of a mostly enchanting description. To the west, the whole line of finely variegated limestone and basaltic coast, as far as Ben-Gore Head, the beautiful promontory of Kenban, or Whitehead, majestically presenting its snow-white front to the foaming ocean, the swinging bridge and bay of Carrickareed, beyond this Sheep Island, and, directly in front, the island of Ragiri, and to the east, the Scottish coast, etc., as already described. The promontory of Fairhead is formed of a number of basaltic colossal pillars, many of them of a much larger size than any to be seen at the causeway, in some instances exceeding 200 feet in length and five in breadth, one of them forming a quadrangular prism, 33 feet by 36 on the sides, and of the gigantic altitude we have just mentioned. It is said to be the largest basaltic pillar yet discovered upon the face of our globe, exceeding in diameter the pedestal that supports the statue of Peter the Great at Petersburg, and considerably surpassing in length the shaft of Pompey's Pillar at Alexandria. At the foot of this magnificent colonnade is seen an immense mass of rock similarly formed, like a wide waste of natural ruins, 
which are by some supposed to have been in the course of successive ages tumbled down from their original foundation by storms or some more violent operation of nature these massive bodies have sometimes withstood the shock of their fall and often lie in groups and clumps of pillars resembling many of the varieties of artificial ruins and forming a very novel and striking landscape the deep waters of the sea rolling at their base with a full and heavy swell the gray man's path the guide will now conduct the traveller to a deep and awful chasm called the gray man's path which divides this extraordinary headland into two parts and presents a passage by which he may descend to the foot of the promontory and take a nearer view of the astonishing and magnificent spectacle we have just described the chasm at the entrance to the pathway is narrow and presents a kind of natural doorway in consequence of a massive pillar having fallen across it and which is supported in a frightful manner at a considerable elevation by the rocks on either side as the tourist descends he will perceive that the chasm widens gradually and the scene becomes much more interesting a beautiful arrangement of pillars in various degrees of elevation is now apparent the solid walls of rude and threatening columns increasing in height regularity and magnificence until at the foot of the precipice they attain to a perpendicular elevation of two hundred and twenty feet the mighty mass upon which the promontory itself is based and which is peculiarly characterized by savage wildness being rendered the more imposing from the violence with which the ocean rages around it formation of basalt etc etc with respect to the formation of the basalts along the causeway coast as well as of basalts in general various and opposing opinions have been entertained by some of the most scientific men one party maintaining they were formed by the action of water and another as strenuously contending that they owe their origin to fire and are simply the formations of boiling lava which at a remote period had issued from the crater of some volcano now extinct it would appear however from various experiments made and from the most authentic evidence that they are indebted alike to fire and water for their formation as in every instance where a columnar trap has been moulded into forms of beauty or regularity such as the basalts of the causeway have assumed it has been either situated contiguous to the ocean or completely insulated by it in the immediate neighbourhood of this coast there is an interesting and beautiful variety of fossils some fine crystals have been found in knocklead and the shore presents specimens of chalcedony zeolites belemnites and dendrites on which representations of several marine plants are portrayed with wonderful precision of figure and some fine pebbles tinged with various hues which will take a high polish masses of mica are found in the interior as are also detached portions of gneiss and granite stalactites are found in the rocks near kenbane and tufa is discovered along the borders of several rills that trickle through beds of limestone should the tourist determine on viewing the coast from the water as far as ballantoy or bengor the carriages or other travelling vehicles may be sent on to bushmills as there is nothing particularly worthy of observation along the line of road from ballycastle to that place procuring a boat at the latter place it will be necessary as the tide runs with great rapidity from fairhead outside sheep island to bengor to take advantage of the flood tide and to keep close along the coast in the direction of kenbane or whitehead a beautiful promontory three miles and a half from ballycastle very lofty composed of limestone as white as snow and forming a narrow peninsula which runs a considerable way into the sea at right angles 
Passing this point, the precipice rises to a great height, and a scene of much beauty meets the eye. The curious promontory and swinging bridge of Carrickareed terminating a façade a mile in length, the greater part of which rises 360 feet above the level of the sea, the entire beautifully diversified in its formation, the pure white limestone being mixed in regular strata with reddish ochre and brownish basalt, and in its termination finely shaded by the dark and heavy rocks by which the immediate vicinity of Carrickareed is so strikingly distinguished. Several natural caves are observed hollowed out of the rocks along this line of coast. At the foot of a precipice 280 feet high, which, overhanging its base, forms a magnificent concave, a cavern presents itself that may readily be entered by boat if the water be smooth. It is 36 feet in height and about 17 feet wide at the entrance. The sides, which are not perpendicular but inclining inwards, being composed of neatly formed pillars, their heads being, as it were artificially, fastened into the rocks above them, and it will be seen that the roof and bottom of the cave are of a construction somewhat similar to the plane of the causeway. The same variety of formation, nicety of fitting, and distinctness of articulation being displayed, and the entire awakening a mingled sensation of pleasure and amazement in the beholder. Swinging Bridge of Carica Reed Having explored this curious cavern, the dimensions of which are continued for a considerable way in, the object which next attracts attention is the swinging bridge and island of Carica Reed. The headland, which projects a considerable way into the sea, and on the extremity of which there is a small cottage built for a fishing station, is divided by a tremendous rent or chasm supposed to have been caused by some extraordinary convulsion of nature. The chasm is 60 feet wide, the rock on either side rising about 80 feet above the level of the water. Across this mighty rent, a bridge of ropes has been thrown for the convenience of the fishermen who reside on the island during the summer months. The construction of this bridge is very simple. Two strong ropes or cables are stretched from one chasm to another in a parallel line and made fast to rings fixed permanently in the rock. Across these planks, 12 inches wide, are laid and secured. A slight rope, elevated convenient to the hand, runs parallel with the footway, and thus a bridge is formed, over which men, women, and boys, many of them carrying heavy burdens, are seen walking or running, apparently with as little concern as they would evince in advancing the same distance on terra firma. It is awful in the extreme to witness from a boat on the water, persons passing and repassing at this giddy height, and a feeling of anxiety, closely allied to pain, is invariably experienced by those who contemplate the apparently imminent danger to which poor people are exposed while thus lightly treading the dangerous and narrow footway which conducts them across the gulf that yawns beneath their feet. Passing under the bridge, right through the chasm, in which the water will be found much smoother and the tide less rapid than at the outer side of the island, the tourist may proceed along the coast, through the strait which separates Sheep Island from the mainland, as far as Dunseverick, or, if the weather will permit, proceeding to Ben Gorehead, of which there is a sublime view from the water, and from which point there is a splendid panoramic prospect of the entire line of coast on the western side of this great headland, including Dunluce Castle and the several promontories and capes of which the causeway is composed. The Island of Rathlin or Ragiri the island of Rathlin or Ragiri lies about seven miles and a half from the shore, is rather more than six miles in length and one in breadth, measuring 2,000 plantation acres and containing about 1,100 inhabitants, who are almost all occupied in agricultural pursuits 
and the making of kelp from the seaweed found on the rocks of which the island is composed. The people are simple, laborious, and honest, and possess a degree of affection for the island that may very much surprise a stranger. In conversation, they always talk of Ireland as a foreign kingdom, and really have scarcely any intercourse with it except in the way of their little trade. Small as this spot is, one can nevertheless trace two different characters among its inhabitants. The Ken Raymer, or western end, is craggy and mountainous. The land in the valleys is rich and well cultivated, but the coast destitute of harbors. A single native is here known to fix his rope to a stake driven into the summit of a precipice, and from thence alone and unassisted to swing down the face of the rock in quest of the nests of seafowl. From hence, activity, bodily strength, and self-dependence are eminent among the Ken Raymer men. Want of intercourse with strangers has preserved many peculiarities, and their native Irish still continues to be the universal language. The Ushet end, on the contrary, is barren in its soil, but more open, and well supplied with little harbors. Hence, its inhabitants are become fishermen, and are accustomed to make short voyages and to barter. Intercourse with strangers has rubbed off many of their peculiarities, and the English tongue is well understood and generally spoken by them. Near Ushet is a lake of fresh water, upwards of a mile in circumference, 144 feet above the level of the sea. There's also another lake on the opposite end of the island called Clygan, 238 feet above the level of the sea. The highest hill is called Kentruin. It is 444 feet high. Near Ushet is Dune Point, remarkable for its resemblance to the causeway. Its pillars have commonly five, six, or seven sides. Cave of Port Coon. Although to those who may have kept close to the shore by Dunseverick Castle, there would be rather a saving of time in at once proceeding to view the magnificent scenery from the summit of the cliffs, and afterwards descending to the causeway from the rockheads by the Stukens, we would rather advise that the course usually pursued should be taken, that the cave of Port Coon be visited, the great mull of the causeway next examined, and then ascending the mountain steep by a path which winds around Port Naufer, the numerous capes and promontories which form the background of the causeway may be leisurely examined from the edge of the cliffs. Following the guide with cautious steps round a projecting point of rock, the cave of Port Coon will now be entered by the land side. It is a cavern of very considerable dimensions, hollowed out of the solid rock, and assuming in its shape something of the form of a pointed arch. Into this the sea rushes, even in the calmest weather, with a bold and boisterous swell. But when the sea is agitated by a storm, the tremendous roaring of the waters as they break into the entrance is terrific in the extreme. The sides and roof are formed, or at least coated, with a number of stones of various shapes and sizes, partly rounded off, as if by the action of the waves, and embedded in a kind of basaltic paste or cement. The echo produced by the beating of the billows as they enter into the cavern is very great, while the reverberations succeeding the report of a pistol generally fired off by the guide are of a very extraordinary description, much resembling the rolling of several peals of thunder near at hand. When the day is fine, the scene presented here is peculiarly grand and interesting. The irregular basaltic side walls with the dark shading of the deeper recesses of the cavern, upon which the foam-crested wave spends its last dying murmurings, forming a fine contrast to the freshness and brilliancy observable outside. The Causeway Having regained the rockheads, 
at a little distance to the right, the guide will point out the path which conducts to the causeway, and which was cut at very considerable expense by the Earl of Bristol, Bishop of Derry. From the little hills, popularly denominated the Stookens, the first view of the causeway is obtained, and a more sublime, imposing, and beautiful scene could not by any possibility be imagined by the most enthusiastic mind than that which bursts on the sight an immense and magnificent bay indented by a number of capes and headlands which rise from a height of three hundred and fifty to four hundred feet above the level of the sea presenting at all points a variety of the most magnificent and interesting views as if nature and art had united their energies to form one truly grand and splendid picture here a beautiful colonnade of the most perfectly formed massive pillars finely relieved by the dark basaltic cliff into which they appear inserted or as standing out in bold and prominent relief this again succeeded by numerous distinct groups and ranges in the columnar form assuming a variety of shapes and sizes in another direction the dark sides of the mighty cliff rising up like the walls of some vast edifice here and there broken down while at their base appears the ponderous wreck of numerous rocks and columns flung from their original position and lying in wild disorder the entire scene forcing upon the beholder the idea that he is contemplating the remains of some mighty fabric hurled into desolation by a tremendous earthquake or some other equally terrible convulsion of nature but it is not the immensity or the grandeur of the scene which will alone fix the attention here the eye now turns to an object equally interesting and even more curious than any which has yet been surveyed from the base of this stupendous facade a mole or key some hundred feet wide of exquisitely shaped pillars is observed to project gradually diminishing from a height of two hundred feet until at a distance of six hundred feet it is lost in the sea this platform or mole may be described as forming one immense inclined plane divided into three compartments by two of those great windykes to which we have before alluded as sloping gradually down from the base of the headland and running into the sea between port nagange and port Naffer, to an extent which has never yet been ascertained the divisions are distinguished by the names of the grand causeway the middle causeway and the little causeway the first mentioned extending six hundred feet at low water while the last does not exceed four hundred feet the entire composed of a number of pillars of different shapes and varying from fifteen to twenty-six inches in diameter sunk in the earth or the surrounding rock and standing nearly perpendicular those nearest the cliff having a slight inclination to the west while those closer to the sea take a contrary direction their perfectly denuded heads presenting a beautiful polygonal pavement somewhat resembling a honeycomb or wasp's nest over which the traveller treads with security for although each is in itself a perfect pillar they are all so completely fitted together and so nicely joined that the water which falls upon them will not penetrate between them they are irregular prisms and display the greatest variety of figure being septagonal pentagonal and hexagonal a few having eight sides and some others four three have been discovered with nine sides while only one has yet been found with but three scarcely any one of them will be found to be equilateral to have sides and angles of the same dimensions or to correspond exactly in form or size with one another while at the same time the sum of all the angles of any one of them will be found to be equal to four right angles the sides of one corresponding exactly to those of the others which lie next to it although otherwise differing completely in size and form 
In the entire causeway, it is computed, there are from 30 to 40,000 pillars, the tallest measuring about 33 feet. On the eastern side, a pillar will be pointed out with 38 joints, and it is said that two others have been broken off. The guide will now direct the attention of the traveler to matters of minor curiosity. The giant's well, a tiny spring of pure, fresh water forcing its way up between the joints of two of the columns. His chair, bagpipes, and various other little etceteras belonging to the renowned hero of the causeway. Turning from these to still more magnificent objects, the eye will naturally rest upon the giant's theater and the giant's organ, the latter a beautiful colonnade of pillars 120 feet long, so called from the resemblance it bears to the pipes of an organ. Opposite to these is the giant's loom, while a little further to the east several isolated columns are seen standing apart from the rest, which are popularly called the chimney tops, from the likeness they bear at a distance to the chimneys of a castle. The extraordinary stratified construction of the cliffs all around will, no doubt, also fix the attention of every curious observer. The tourist having examined every object of interest which can be viewed from the foot of the great cliff or promontory, the guide will next point to a steep and narrow path that leads up the nearly perpendicular acclivity which forms the background of Port Nuffer. Anecdotes of persons falling from the cliffs. The guides relate several interesting stories of individuals who fell from the heights in this neighborhood. From the aired snout, a man named J. Kane tumbled down while engaged in searching for fossil coal during a severe winter, and strange to say, was taken up alive, although seriously injured by the fall. Another man, named Adam Morning, when descending a giddy path that leads to the foot of Port Naspania, with his wife's breakfast, who was at that time employed in making kelp, missed his footing, and tumbling headlong was dashed to Adam's ere he reached the bottom. The poor woman witnessed the misfortune from a distance, but supposing, from the kind of coat he wore, that it had been one of the sheep that had been grazing on the headland, she went to examine it, when she found instead the mangled corpse of her husband. Another story is told of a poor girl, who being betrothed to one she loved, in order to furnish herself and her intended husband with some of the little comforts of life, procured employment on the shore, in the manufacture alluded to, with some other persons in the neighborhood. Port Naspania, as will be observed, is completely surrounded by a tremendous precipice, from three to four hundred feet high, and is only accessible by a narrow pathway, by far the most difficult and dangerous of any of those nearly perpendicular ascents to be met with along the entire coast. Up this frightful footway was this poor girl, in common with all who were engaged in the same manufacture, obliged to climb, heavily laden with a burden of the kelp, and, having gained the steepest point of the peak, was just about to place her foot on the summit, when, in consequence of the load on her shoulders shifting a little to one side, she lost her balance, fell backwards, and ere she reached the bottom was a lifeless and mangled corpse. To behold women and children toiling up this dreadful ascent, bearing heavy loads either on their heads or fastened from their necks and shoulders, is really painful, even to the least sensitive, unaccustomed to the sight, and yet the natives themselves appear to think nothing whatever of it. An anecdote is also related of a man who was in the habit of seating himself on the edge of a cliff which overhung its base at Portmore to enjoy the beauty of the widely extended scene. One fine summer morning, however, having gained the height and taken his accustomed seat, 
while indulging in the thoughts and feelings which we may suppose the scene and situation likely to inspire a change came o'er the spirit of his dream the rock upon which he was perched gave way and in the twinkling of an eye bore him on its rapid wing to the foot of a precipice where it sunk several feet into the earth safely depositing its ambitious bestrider on the shore at a distance of fully four hundred feet from the towering eminence off which he had made his involuntary aerial descent pleiskin towards the headland of bengor the tourist may now proceed following the windings of the cliffs and examining in succession the various capes and bays into which the great promontory is broken while the appearance of this entire line from port Naufer to ben gorhead must be admitted to be grand in the extreme the promontory of pleiskin will be found more particularly deserving of minute attention it is a continuation of the headland of ben gore and is beyond doubt the prettiest thing in nature in the way of a promontory it appears as though it had been painted for effect in various shades of green vermilion rock red ochre gray lichens etc its general form so beautiful its storied pillars tier over tier so architecturally graceful its curious and varied stratifications supporting the columnar ranges here the dark brown amorphous basalt there the red ochre and below that again the slender but distinct lines of wood coal all the edges of its different stratifications tastefully varied by the hand of vegetable nature with grasses and ferns and rock plants in the various strata of which it is composed sublimity and beauty having been blended together in the most extraordinary manner bengore head bengore or the goat's promontory which rises three hundred and thirty feet above the waters is the extreme headland but there is nothing in the scenery by which it is surrounded particularly worthy of observation with the exception of a curious stratum of fossil coal which is found lying between two ranges of basaltic pillars and the exceedingly fine view which meets the eye from its summit in the direction of fairhead rathlin etc dunluce castle having viewed everything worthy of notice in the immediate direction of the causeway the traveller may proceed towards dunluce castle on his route to coleraine the castle which our readers will find described in a former number of our journal is one of the finest ruins to be met with in ireland and possesses very considerable interest as having been connected with several important events in the history of the country from our limited space the directions and descriptions we have given of this interesting line of coast have necessarily been very concise we would therefore refer the traveller who may wish for further information to the northern tourist published by messrs curry and company and from which although the copyright is now altogether their own they have kindly permitted us to make such extracts as suited our purpose the guide to the causeway which they have just published we would particularly recommend to the notice of persons travelling in the north of ireland as affording a correct picture of that extraordinary work of nature having now conducted the reader along the most interesting portions of the antrim coast pointing out in our way whatever we considered might interest or amuse we take our leave in the hope of again meeting him in the course of the ensuing year in some other interesting portions of our country heretofore undescribed end of a guide to the giant's causeway by anonymous recorded by colleen mcmahon loss of his majesty's frigate anson which was wrecked near helston december twenty ninth eighteen o seven author unknown 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The following account of the unfortunate loss of His Majesty's frigate Anson and of the much lamented death of Captain Lydiard is communicated by the Captain's steward, who was continually about his person and on whose veracity our readers may depend on the twenty seventh of december eighteen o seven cruising off the black rocks and perceiving the approach of a gale kept a lookout for the commodore in the dragon the next morning monday the gale increasing from the southwest and not perceiving the dragon in any direction at nine o'clock shaped our course for the lizard with a view of getting into falmouth at twelve o'clock all hands upon deck the sea running very high two bowsprits on the starboard side washed away by the violence of the sea also a port abreast the mainmast by which means she shipped a great deal of water the captain sent for the master at the time to determine the situation of the ship and at half past twelve o'clock or thereabout land was seen about two miles distant but from the extreme thickness of the weather we could not ascertain what part captain lydiard ordered the ship to be wore to the southeast not thinking it safe to stand in any nearer under such circumstances of weather soon after ten o'clock the master wished them to run in again and make the land which was supposed to be the lizard and that if we could make it out we should get into falmouth captain lydiard asked if he thought it could be done without risk he the master said he thought it could the ship was then wore, but the weather still continuing thick, we had a cast of the lead, and having twenty-seven fathom, we were convinced we must be to the westward of the lizard, and immediately wore ship again, and made all sail. Soon after three o'clock, as the captain was going to dinner, he looked out of the quarter-gallery, from whence he saw the breakers close to us, and the land a long distance ahead. The ship wore instantly, and Captain Lydiard's mind made up to come to an anchor, for had we kept under way, the ship must have struck upon the rocks in a few hours. The top-gallant masts were got upon deck, and she rode very well until four o'clock on Tuesday morning, when the cable parted. The other anchor immediately let go, and the lower yards and topmasts struck. At daylight the other cable parted, and we were then so close to the land that we had no alternative but to go on shore when captain lydiard desired the master to run the ship into the best situation for saving the lives of the people and fortunately a fine beach presented upon which the ship was run shortly after she struck the mainmast went but hurt no one captains lydiard and sullivan with the first lieutenant were resolved to remain with the ship as long as possible Many people were killed on board. The first lieutenant and a number of others washed overboard. It was the captain's great wish to save the lives of the ship's company, and he was employed in directing them the whole of the time. He had placed himself by the wheel, holding by the spokes, where he was exposed to the violence of the sea, which broke tremendously over him, and from continuing in this situation too long, waiting to see the people out of the ship, he became so weak that upon attempting to leave the ship himself and being impeded by a boy who was in the way and whom he endeavoured to assist he was washed away and drowned 
such is the steward's account of this melancholy accident another correspondent furnishes us with the following particulars his majesty's frigate anson of forty guns after completing her stores of all kinds for a four-month cruise sailed from falmouth on the twenty fourth of december eighteen o seven to resume her station off brest as it blew very hard from the south-west south we were never able to get so far to the westward however captain lydiard persevered in his endeavours until the twenty eighth on the morning of that day we made the isle of bath on the french coast which they had seen the previous evening there being now every appearance of bad weather captain lydiard determined to return to port and accordingly shaped a course for the lizard the gale still increasing and it coming on very heavy about three o'clock p m the land was seen about five miles west of the lizard but at the time not exactly known as many opinions were expressed as to what land was then in sight the ship was watered to stand off at sea but had not long been on that tack before the land was again descried right ahead it was now quite certain that the ship was embayed and every exertion was made to work her off the shore but finding she lost ground every tack she was brought to an anchor in twenty-five fathoms at five p m with the best bower anchor veered away to two cables length by their anchor the ship rode in a most tremendous sea and as heavy a gale as was ever experienced until four a m of the twenty-ninth when the cable parted the small bower anchor was then let go and veered away to two cables length which held her until eight a m when that also parted and as the last resource in order to preserve the lives of as many as possible the foretop sail was cut and the ship run on shore on the sand which forms the bar between the low pool about three miles from helston and the sea the tide had ebbed about an hour when she struck on taking the ground she broached to with her broadside to the beach and most happily heeled into the shore had she on the contrary heeled off not a soul could have escaped alive now commenced a most heart-rending scene to some hundreds of spectators who had been in anxious suspense and who exerted themselves to the utmost at the imminent risk of their lives to save those of their drowning fellow-men many of those who were most forward in quitting the ship lost their lives being swept away by the tremendous sea which entirely went over the wreck the mainmast formed a floating raft from the ship to the shore and the greater part of those who escaped passed by this medium some of the officers who were fortunately saved have given us the following further particulars of this unfortunate event the anson sailed from falmouth on christmas eve on her station off the black rocks as one of the lookout frigates of the channel fleet in the violent storm of monday blowing out west to southwest she stood across the entrance of the channel towards Scilly, made the land's end which they mistook for the lizard and bore up as they thought for falmouth still doubtful however in the evening of monday captain lydiard stood off again to the southward when a consultation being held it was once more resolved to bear up for falmouth running eastward and northward still under the fatal persuasion that the lizard was on the northwest of them they did not discover their mistake till the man on the lookout ahead called out breakers the ship was instantaneously broached to and the best bower let go 
which happily brought her up but the rapidity with which the cable had veered out made it impossible to serve it and it soon parted in the hawse hole the sheet anchor was then let go which also brought up the ship but after riding end on for a short time this cable parted from the same cause about eight in the morning and the ship went plump on shore upon the ridge of sand which separates the low pool from the bay never did the sea run more tremendously high it broke over the ship's masts which soon went by the board the main mast forming a floating raft from the ship to the shore and the greater part of those who escaped passed by this medium one of the men saved reports that captain lydiard was near him on the mainmast but he seemed to have lost the use of his faculties with horror of the scene and soon disappeared we have not language to convey an adequate picture of the terrific view which presented itself but justice demands that we notice the conduct of a worthy member of a sect but too much vilified at a time when no one appeared on the ship's deck and it was supposed that the work of death had ceased a methodist preacher venturing his life through the surf got on board over the wreck of the mainmast to see if any more remained some honest hearts followed him they found several persons still below who could not get up among whom were two women and two children the worthy preacher and his party saved the two women and some of the men but the children were lost about two p m the ship went to pieces when a few more men who for some crime had been confined in irons below emerged from the wreck one of these was saved by three o'clock no appearance of the vessel remained she was an old ship a sixty-four we believe cut down which accounts for her beating to pieces so soon on a sandy bottom the men who survived were conveyed to helston about two miles distant where they were taken care of by the magistrates and afterwards sent to falmouth in charge of the regulating captain at that port general report has stated the number drowned to be greater than it really is but of the missing we understand many are deserters who scampered off as soon as they reached the shore among the officers saved are the following captain sullivan passenger mrs hill and brayley midshipmen mr ross assistant surgeon and some others we regret to say that about fifty of our countrymen are missing amongst these unfortunate men is captain charles lydiard also the first lieutenant a very valuable officer also the doctor a very worthy man and his son besides some midshipmen and petty officers the principal things saved from the wreck are a few casks containing spirits butter etc captain lydiard was nearly halfway to the beach when a most dreadful sea overwhelmed him so that he was seen no more the body of captain lydiard was found and interred with military honours several officers both naval and military attended the funeral together with the mayor etc of helston the body was afterwards conveyed to his family vault in hazelmere surrey this worthy and distinguished officer was married to an amiable woman by whom he had five children he was highly esteemed as a gentleman and as an officer he was of sterling merit his conduct in attacking the foudroyant admiral williamettes under the spanish batteries near the havana in the capture of the spanish frigate pomona under the batteries of muir castle and at the capture of curacao 
obtained him a name for skill and bravery that will live after him we are happy to hear that the inhabitants of helston and its neighbourhood have in this instance as well as the late one of the transport which was also wrecked rescued their character from those odious epithets of savage and barbarian which have heretofore been thrown upon them for by their unexampled and hazardous activity all the crew that remained on board and escaped a watery grave by not being precipitate in getting on shore were landed by eleven o'clock and too much praise cannot be given that mr tobias roberts shopkeeper of helston does not deserve for the imminent and perilous danger he ran by remaining close to the anson while the sea in all its rage broke over her mast high lifting the benumbed crew from impending ruin on the thirty first of december mr rogers the coroner took an inquest of the bodies of mr robert smith the surgeon and mr richard leach one of the midshipmen belonging to the anson in the churchyard at helston dead bodies were continually washing on shore in great numbers along the coast and most of them very much mangled and disfigured during the interval of the anson being on the beach the situation of our brave seamen was perilous beyond description the sea running mountains high so that it was quite impossible for any boat to live on the water and the only method which remained for the crew to land was by ropes from the masts to the beach as fortunately she was thrown with her masts towards the land and through the assistance of which by the aid and blessing of a merciful and kind providence about two hundred and fifty were saved from destruction we cannot help here recording as an illustration of the naval character a most heroic and benevolent act of one of these seamen in the hour of danger this brave fellow was supporting himself in the water on a plank expecting every moment a watery grave at this critical time he perceived one of his companions who had been swimming for about an hour in the vain hope of reaching land in such an exhausted state that he could no longer persevere in his exertions our hero magnanimously threw him the plank with which he had so long defended himself desiring him to take that the only assistance he could at present give him while he would see how far he himself could swim having thus parted with his staff he swam for about twenty minutes and fortunately met with another piece of the wreck by which he was enabled to prolong his worthy existence till a boat came to his relief we sincerely trust that the valour and commiseration of this noble tar may be properly rewarded whose merit is certainly worthy of a more exalted station another anecdote of a more entertaining though perhaps less interesting nature but equally authentic has happily reached us in time for insertion one of the poor fellows who narrowly escaped drowning took refuge in the first cottage he could find in this cottage there happened to live an old lady and her niece who received the distressed mariner in the most kind and compassionate manner as however they were provided with no male apparel and it was necessary that their guest should have some comfortable clothing till his own was perfectly dry the niece supplied him with a change of her own and jack having plenty of flannel petticoats on soon recovered his strength and spirits though plenty did not adorn their board yet a sufficiency was provided 
and the hospitality with which it was given rendered it more delicious suffice it to say that the sailor passed a very comfortable night there and owing to a pressing invitation from the niece who thought it would be dangerous for him to stir out too soon for fear of catching a cold that might be fatal he also spent two or three comfortable days it was not however the apprehensions of catching cold a phrase unknown to mariners that induced jack to make a longer stay the fact was he became delighted with the conversation and manners of his younger hostess and as every hour of his stay tended to augment that delight he at last declared to the old woman his passion for the niece the information was by no means disagreeable to the latter and the end of the matter was that our hero found a wife in helston he does not therefore repent his being shipwrecked but humorously remarks it is an ill wind that blows nobody good the philanthropy of the inhabitants of helston in endeavouring to save their fellow-creatures from perishing by shipwreck reminds us of another similar instance of feeling and humanity which was also united with courage and which we think may with great propriety be introduced here as a further stimulus to the people of seacoast to use at all times on these occasions their utmost exertions in favour of distressed mariners a ship having been wrecked at the cape of good hope a guard was sent from horse island consisting of thirty men and a lieutenant to the place where the ship lay in order to keep a strict lookout and to prevent any of the cargo being stolen a gibbet was erected and at the same time an edict was issued importing that whoever should come near that spot should be hanged immediately without trial or sentence of judgment passed on him from this cause the compassionate inhabitants who had gone out on horseback to afford the wretched sufferers in the ship some assistance were obliged to return back without being able to do them any service but on the contrary were ocular witnesses of the brutality and want of feeling shown by some persons on this occasion who did not bestow a thought of affording their fellow-creatures that sat on the wreck perishing with cold hunger and thirst and were almost in the arms of death the least assistance or relief an old man in the name of walter mad by birth a european had a son in the citadel who was a corporal and among the first who had been ordered out to horse island where the guard was to be set for the preservation of the shipwrecked goods this worthy veteran borrowed a horse and rode out in the morning with a bottle of wine and a loaf of bread for his son's breakfast this happened so early that the gibbet had not been erected nor the edict posted up to point out to the traveller the nearest road to eternity this hoary sire had no sooner delivered his son's breakfast than he heard the lamentations of the distressed crew from the wreck when he resolved to ride his horse which was a good swimmer to the wreck with a view to save some of them he repeated his dangerous trip six more times bringing each time two men alive on shore and thus saved in all fourteen persons the horse was by this time so much fatigued that he did not think it prudent to venture out again but the cries and entreaties of the poor wretches on the wreck increasing he ventured once more which proved so unfortunate that he lost his own life as on this occasion too many rushed upon him at once some of them catching hold of the horse's tail and others of the bridle 
by which means the horse both wearied out and now too heavy laden turned head over heels and all were drowned together when the storm and waves had subsided the ship was found to lie at so small a distance from the land that a person might have almost leaped from it on shore the east india directors in holland on receiving this intelligence ordered one of their ships to be called after the name of waltermad and the story of his humanity to be painted on her stern they further enjoined the regency at the cape to provide for his descendants unfortunately in the southern hemisphere they had not the same sentiments of gratitude the young corporal waltermad who had been an unavailing witness of his father's having sacrificed himself in the service of the company and of mankind wished in vain to be gratified with his father's place humble as it was keeper of the beasts in the menagerie stung with the disappointment he had left the ungrateful country and was gone to batavia where he died before the news of so great and unexpected a recommendation could reach him End of loss of his majesty's frigate anson which was wrecked near helston december twenty ninth eighteen o seven author unknown painting reflections from landscape painting and oil color by alfred east this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org Reflections If you have been to sea you may have noticed that the color of the water was mainly due to the reflection of the sky. The motions of the wind and ocean currents throw the waves into many angles which reflect portions of the sky at various lines of incidence. If you cross the channel you observe a difference in the color of the water when you face the sun or turn away from it. You know the water itself is the same, but it has varied with the appearance of the sky. The sea, like the land, derives its tints from numerous causes. The clouds, in all their transformations from dawn to sundown, affect the result, and to their reflections, must be added the mutual interaction of lights and shadows among the waves themselves. Have you watched the agitated surface of a rapid stream? It displays an immense variety of lights and darks, more baffling than anything else in natural phenomena. Its movement is so quick, the colors of the reflected objects are so diverse as to render it almost impossible to portray its interlacing and intermingling forms. Only by the most persistent study, first in a series of drawings of a simple passage, and then of a more involved passage, can you attain thorough mastery of both facts and the method of treating them. Perhaps the simplest stage in the study would be an examination of the reflection of some individual object that is a light colored pole standing by the edge of the water it has we will suppose a background of dark green trees which almost cover the area of its reflections you will see the contortions of its shape 
produced by the swift alterations in the surface of the watery mirror at the base of the reflection the line of the reflected pole is broken into quivering fragments this is accounted for by the interruption of other reflections at other angles you will observe that the movement of the reflected forms are coincident with the movement of the water and at the edge of the stream the object is more defined and as it gets nearer the center it is broken up or confused by the more rapid movement but supposing the stream was still the reflection would be almost a replica of the object but if you find it difficult to draw the reflection of the pole your task is increased when you come to its background you not only have to represent a light object against a dark space but a confusion of many colors thrown across the moving surface there are other conditions which lend attraction to the study of reflected trees in water in the case of an absolutely still surface which reproduces the scene distinctly the reflected object presents a different figure owing to the angle of vision of the object itself varying from the angle of reflection it is not necessary for my purpose to go very closely into the principle involved my present aim is to encourage the student to observe and he will reap ample reward in the many surprises of this fascinating research from rough to smooth water you will find the reflection altered according to the motion of the water at the surface perhaps the most effective point but not the most difficult to seize is when the water is slightly agitated by the air and the reflections are lengthened into long strips of color to the foreground the charm of this particular effect is perhaps most striking on large sheets of inland water the surface may be so agitated as to produce lengthy reflections of sky tints which create a more vivid feeling of liquidity than if the water were still take again the reflected glare of the sun upon water on a sultry day the heat has dimmed the mountains with a soft haze and the sleepy lake lies like an inert mass of molten metal the very air seems thick with heat and all about you is a sense of its throbbing pulsation nothing seems to move except by the disturbance of the heat waves a fish leaps and the broken surface of the water reflects the sunshine in an instantaneous flash or you may have seen some floating rushes the capillary attraction pulls up the water till it presents a reflecting surface to the sun and reveals an edge of intense brilliance which it would be impossible fully to realize with paint have you noticed also the sun at noon on a hot august day how its heat fills the air with a quivering mirage how everything that is seen within a certain distance from the earth's surface seems to be vibrating you actually see the heat and its peculiar effect upon the lower sky which practically speaking is clear 
you wish to give the sensation of it in your picture every sky which is clear and big with a low landscape horizon gives in a more or less marked manner this sensation along its edge at the zenith it may be quite calm and pure a vast expanse of perfectly placid blue but by noon along the hot fields you observe the heat shimmering and vibrating with a growing effect upon the flat fields until the figures of the harvesters in the distance and the cattle and the horses are distorted by the strange radiation the sun's reflection is sometimes caught in looking from a height upon a river between the trunks of trees the light cuts out the substance of the intervening darks and in some places where the trunk is slender apparently divides it this glare of intense sunshine cannot be entirely realized as usual a compromise must be made and if that compromise gives you the feeling of the actual fact then it is justified i may say in passing that the white of the palette does not express light break it with yellow not mix it and you will find that it suggests a higher key although in reality it is of a lower shade than the actual white pigment similarly the juxtaposition of certain pigments so broken that the predominant feeling of the colors is the same as that of a flat tone may give one a sensation of vibration although appearing in the general arrangement of color values as a flat tone roofs of houses by reflection may reach a higher pitch of light than anything else in the landscape and make a most interesting feature and one which probably conveys the idea of sunshine better than any other detail of your composition the beauty of reflected color may contribute much to your design i can recall the reflection of the sublime fujiyama across the water in the lake of hara ending amid the interstices of the amber rushes at my feet beyond the mirrored blue of the sky the snow peak and the mystic gray of the shore gleamed a strip of pale rose color one would have supposed this to reflect the sky immediately above but no it reflected another part of the heavens innumerable wavelets ruffled by a passing current of air had caught up the tint of a rosy cloud and transferred it to a remoter part of the lake the reflection from sunlit grass on the under parts of a white cow combined with that of the sky on its back is a puzzling thing in paint but it is far worthier your brush than the exercise of painting the cow in the shadow of a fold yard uncomplicated by reflected lights i was once asked to criticize a picture of cows under an evening sky and i made the comment that it was not painted from nature why inquired the artist because i replied you show no reflections of the eastern sky upon the surfaces which would in nature throw them back 
to your eye we admire the beauty of reflection in a crowded street on a wet afternoon the lamps have just been lit and they are repeated with many variations in the puddles the pavement reflects the wayfarer giving its own local color and accepting others on a bright day there is an enormous amount of reflected light from the sky which subdues the color and at the same time raises the pitch of light the result being the loss of that richness one sees when the sky is gray to view the full brilliance of color in any country you must see it under a gray sky you have probably remarked the difference in this respect between england and the south not only is the landscape grayer by reason of the local color of the component parts of the landscape but it becomes so in consequence of the more pronounced light a scarlet dress in an english scene looks brilliant but the same object transferred to a street in sunlit cairo would melt into its surroundings in egypt the glare of the sun is so strong that the houses add to their native whiteness a blazing reflection which defies paint and this circumstance drove many artists to darken the sky a conventional device which only defeated its own end the object which they failed to achieve by this means was to represent the all-pervading light and heat which lends so distinct a feature to egyptian scenery so again the physical effect upon one's eyesight of reflected light in the desert or on an alpine snow slope imparts a sensation which endures in one's memory but though that glow may be realized partially by words its brilliance can be much less adequately conveyed by painting note the reflection of the grass upon the trunks of trees near the ground by painting this reflection you will at once get rid of the hardness which most amateurs betray do what corot did walk around your tree examine it narrowly and know it thoroughly before attempting to paint it note that not only is the color of the trunk altered by reflected light but every leaf while always in color in sympathy with the sky reflects light and color according to its surfaces for example leaves with an absorbent surface as the elm do not reflect the sky as brilliantly as those with a smoother surface and always remember that the color of a tree is built up by the aggregate of the colors of its leaves you will have noticed how within the shadow of a whitewashed wall across a sunlit street there gleams the reflection of the shining road the light is reflected and re-reflected again like an echo remark also that the depth of water is indicated by the character of the reflections on its surface shallow water reveals the color of its bed within the reflection of dark objects note on a rainy day the hundred phenomena of the wet streets and you will see things that will come to you as revelations the other day i saw in a river a submerged boat i perceived distinctly its ribs and seats 
without changing my position when i half closed my eyes i saw nothing but the reflection of the sky upon the same factor of sky reflection depends the just modeling of a tree and its branches and you should not set out to reproduce foliage before you have conscientiously studied the action of reflected light a thousand things in nature are beautified by reflections which give animation and vitality reflected light makes the edge of a stagnant pond sparkle like a necklace of diamonds it touches the scythe which severs the dank grass it illuminates the ferrule of the carter's whip until it glistens like the scepter of a king it vivifies your subject and gives a soul to your picture it should always manifest its presence it is easily forgotten in the studio but not so readily when one faces nature there is no excuse for the painter let his scheme be ever so decorative who neglects the aid of a quality which often adds to and can never detract from the dignity of his work if i may so define it it announces the sympathy and unity of nature kissing with golden light the meadow green gilding the stream with heavenly alchemy end of painting reflections from landscape painting in oil color by alfred east read for librivox by sue anderson progress by professor brown this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org progress in the course of a lecture on the resources of new brunswick professor brown of the ontario agricultural college told the following story by an arabian writer i passed one day by a very rude and beautifully situated hamlet in a vast forest and asked a savage whom i saw how long it had been there it is indeed an old place replied he we know it has stood there for one hundred years as the hunting home of the great st john but how long previous to that we do not know one century afterward as i passed by the same place found a busy little city reaching down to the sea where ships were loading timber for distant lands on asking one of the inhabitants how long this had flourished he replied i am looking to the future years and not to what has gone past and have no time to answer such questions on my return there one hundred years afterward i found a very smoky and wonderfully populous city with many tall chimneys and asked one of the inhabitants how long it had been founded it is indeed a mighty city replied he we know not how long it has existed and our ancestors there on this subject are as ignorant as ourselves another century after that as i passed by the same place i found a much greater city than before but could not see the tall chimneys and the air was pure as crystal the country to the north and the east and the west was covered with noble mansions and great farms full of many cattle and sheep i demanded of a peasant who was reaping a grain on the sands of the seashore how long ago this change took place in sooth a strange question replied he this ground and city have never been different from what you now behold them were there not of old said i 
many great manufacturers in this city never answered he so far as we have seen and never did our fathers speak to us of any such on my return there one hundred years afterward i found the city was built across the sea eastward into the opposite country there were no horses and no smoke of any kind came from the dwellings the inhabitants were travelling through the air on wires which stretched far into the country on every side and the whole land was covered with many mighty trees and great vineyards so that the noble mansions could not be seen for the magnitude of the fruit thereof lastly on coming back again after an equal lapse of time i could not perceive the slightest vestige of the city i inquired of a very old and saintly man who appeared to be under deep emotion and who stood alone upon the spot how long it had been destroyed is this a question said he from a man like you know ye not that cities are not now part of the human economy every one travels through the air on wings of electricity and lives in separate dwellings scattered all over the land the ships of the sea are driven by the same power and go above or below as found to be best for them in the cultivation of the soil said he neither horse nor steam power are employed the plough is not known nor are fertilizers of any more value in growing the crops of the field electricity is carried under the surface of every farm and all overhead like a net when the inhabitants require rain for any particular purpose it is drawn down from the heavens by similar means the influence of electricity has destroyed all evil things and removed all diseases from among men and beasts and every living thing upon the earth all things have changed and what was once the noble city of my name is to become the great meeting-place of all the leaders of science throughout the whole world end of progress by professor brown read by april six zero nine zero california united states of america the virgin averse to matrimony by erasmus fourteen sixty six to fifteen thirty six from the colloquies of erasmus volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the virgin averse to matrimony the argument a virgin averse to matrimony will needs be a nun she is dissuaded from it and persuaded to moderate her inclination in this matter and to do nothing against her parents consent but rather to marry that virginity may be maintained in a conjugal life the monk's way of living in celibacy is rallied children why so called he abhors those plagiaries who entice young men and maidens into monasteries as though salvation was to be had no other way whence it comes to pass that many great wits are as it were buried alive eubulus catherine eubulus i am glad with all my heart that supper is over at last that we may have an opportunity to take a walk which is the great diversion of the world catherine and i was quite tired of sitting so long at table eubulus 
how green and charming does everything in the world look surely this is its youth catherine ay so it is eubulus but why is it not spring with you too catherine what do you mean eubulus because you look a little dull catherine why don't i look as i used to do eubulus shall i show you how you look catherine with all my heart eubulus do you see this rose how it contracts itself now towards night catherine yes i do see it and what then eubulus why just so you look catherine a very fine comparison eubulus if you won't believe me see your own face in this fountain here what was the meaning you sat sighing at supper so catherine pray don't ask questions about that which don't concern you eubulus but it does very much concern me since i can't be cheerful myself without you being so too see now there's another sigh and a deep one too catherine there is indeed something that troubles my mind but i must not tell it eubulus what won't you tell me that love you more dearly than i do my own sister my katie don't be afraid to speak be it what it will you are safe catherine if i should be safe enough yet i'm afraid i shall never the better in telling my tale to one that can do me no good eubulus how do you know that if i can't serve you in the thing itself perhaps i may in counsel or consolation catherine i can't speak it out eubulus what is the matter do you hate me catherine i love you more deeply than my own brother and yet for all that my heart won't let me divulge it eubulus will you tell me if i guess it why do you quibble now give me your word or i'll never let you alone till i have it out catherine well then i do give you my word eubulus upon the whole of the matter i can't imagine what you should want of being completely happy catherine i would i were so eubulus you are in the very flower of your age if i'm not mistaken you are now in your seventeenth year catherine that's true eubulus so that in my opinion the fear of old age can't yet be any part of your trouble catherine nothing less i assure you eubulus and you are every way lovely and that is the singular gift of god catherine of my person such as it is i neither glory nor complain eubulus and besides the habit of your body and your complexion bespeak you to be in perfect health unless you have some hidden distemper catherine nothing of that i thank god eubulus and besides your credit is fair catherine i trust it is eubulus 
and you are endowed with a good understanding suitable to the perfections of your body and such a one as i could wish to myself in order to my attainment of the liberal sciences catherine if i have i thank god for it eubulus and again you are of a good agreeable humour which is rarely met with in great beauties they are not wanting either catherine i wish they were such as they should be eubulus some people are uneasy at the meanness of their extraction but your parents are both of them well descended and virtuous of plentiful fortunes and very kind to you catherine i have nothing to complain upon that account eubulus what need of many words of all the young women in the country you are the person i would choose for a wife if i were in condition to pretend to it catherine and i would choose none but you for a husband if i were disposed to marry eubulus it must needs be some extraordinary matter that troubles your mind so catherine it is no light matter you may depend upon it eubulus you won't take it ill i hope if i guess at it catherine i have promised you i won't eubulus i know by experience what a torment love is come confess now is that it you promised to tell me catherine there's love in the case but not that sort of love that you imagine eubulus what sort of love is it that you mean catherine guess eubulus i have guessed all the guesses i can guess but i'm resolved i'll never let go of this hand till i have gotten it out of you catherine how violent you are eubulus whatever your care is repose it in my breast catherine since you are so urgent i will tell you from my very infancy i have had a very strong inclination eubulus to what i beseech you catherine to put myself into a cloister eubulus what to be a nun catherine yes eubulus ho oh, i find i was out in my notion to leave a shoulder of mutton for a sheep's head catherine what's that you say eubulus eubulus nothing my dear i did but cough but go on tell me it out catherine this was my inclination but my parents were violently set against it eubulus i hear ye catherine on the other hand i strove by entreaties fair words and tears to overcome that pious aversion of my parents eubulus oh strange catherine at length when they saw i persisted in entreaties prayers and tears they promised me that if i continued with the same mind till i was seventeen years of age they would let me to my own liberty the time is now come i continue still in the same mind and they go from their words this is that which troubles my mind i have told you my distemper do you be my physician and cure me if you can eubulus 
in the first place my sweet creature i would advise you to moderate your affections and if you can't do all you would do all that you can catherine it will certainly be the death of me if i hadn't my desire eubulus what was it that gave the first rise to this fatal resolution catherine formerly when i was a little girl they carried me into one of those cloisters of virgins carried me all about it and showed me the whole college i was mightily taken with the virgins they looked so charmingly pretty just like angels the chapels were so neat and smelt so sweet the gardens looked so delicately well ordered that in short which way soever i turned my eyes everything seemed delightful and then i had the prettiest discourse with the nuns and i found two or three that had been my playfellows when i was a child and i have had a strange passion for that sort of life ever since eubulus i have no dislike to the nunneries themselves though the same thing can never agree with all persons but considering your genius as far as i can gather from your complexion and manners i would rather advise you to an agreeable husband and set up a college in your own house of which he shall be the abbot and you the abbess catherine i will rather die than quit my resolution of virginity eubulus nay it is indeed an admirable thing to be a pure virgin but you may keep yourself so without running yourself into a cloister from which you never can come out you may keep your maidenhead at home with your parents catherine yes i may but it is not so safe there eubulus much safer truly in my judgment there than with those brawny swill-bellied monks they are no capons i assure you whatever you may think of them they are called fathers and they commonly make good their calling to the very letter time was when maids lived nowhere honester than at home with their parents when the only spiritual father they had was the bishop but prithee tell me what cloister hast thou made choice of among them all to be a slave in catherine the Christercian eubulus oh i know it it is a little way from your father's house catherine you're right eubulus i am very well acquainted with the whole gang a sweet fellowship to renounce father and mother friends and a worthy family for for the patriarch himself what with age wine and a certain natural drowsiness has been moped this many a day he can't now relish anything but wine and he has two companions john and jadocus that match him to a hair and as for john indeed i can't say he is an ill man for he has nothing at all of a man about him but his beard not a grain of learning in him and not much more common prudence and jadocus he's so arrogant a sot that if he were not tied up to the habit of his order he would walk in the streets in a fool's cap with ears and bells at it catherine truly they seem to be very good men eubulus but my kitty i know em better than you do 
they will do good offices perhaps between you and your parents but they may gain a proselyte catherine jadocus is very civil to me eubulus a great favour indeed but suppose them good and learned men to-day you find them the contrary perhaps to-morrow and let them be what they will then you must bear with them catherine i am so troubled to see so many entertainments at my father's house and married folks are so given to talk smutty i am put to it sometimes when men come to kiss me and you know one can't deny a kiss eubulus he that would avoid everything that offends him must go out into the world we must accustom our ears to hear everything but let nothing enter the mind but what is good i suppose your parents allow you a chamber to yourself catherine yes they do eubulus then when you retire thither if you find the company go troublesome and while you are drinking and joking you may entertain yourself with christ your spouse praying singing and giving thanks your father's house will not defile you and you will make it the more pure catherine it is but a great deal safer to be in virgin company eubulus i do not disapprove of a chaste society yet i will not have you delude yourself with false imaginations when once you come to be thoroughly acquainted there and see things nearer hand perhaps things won't look with so good a face as they did once they are not all virgins that wear veils believe me catherine good words i beseech you eubulus those are good words that are true words i never read of but one virgin that was a mother i e the virgin mary unless the eulogy we appropriate to the virgin be transferred to a great many to be called virgins after childbearing catherine i abhor the thoughts on it eubulus nay and more than that those maids i'll assure you do more than becomes maids to do catherine i why so pray eubulus because there are more among em that imitate sappho in manners than are like her in wit catherine i don't very well understand you eubulus my dear kitty i therefore speak in cipher that you may not understand me catherine but my mind runs strangely to this course of life and i have a strong opinion that this disposition comes from god because it hath continued with me so many years and grows every day stronger and stronger eubulus your good parents being so violently set against it makes me suspect it if what you attempt were good god would have inclined your parents to favour the motion but you have contracted this affection from the gay things you saw when you were a child the tittle-tattles of the nuns and the hankering you have after your old companions the external pomp and specious ceremonies and the importunities of the senseless monks which hunt you to make a proselyte of you that they may tipple more largely 
they know your father to be liberal and bountiful and they'll either give him an invitation to them because they know he'll bring wine enough with him to serve their ten lusty soaks or else they'll come to him therefore let me advise you to do nothing without your parents consent whom god has appointed your guardians god would have inspired their minds too if the thing you were attempting were a religious matter catherine in this matter it is piety to condemn father and mother eubulus it is i grant sometimes a piece of piety to condemn father or mother for the sake of christ but for all that i would not act piously that being a christian and had a pagan to his father who had nothing but his son's charity to support him would forsake him and leave him to starve if you had not this day professed christ by baptism and if your parents should forbid you to be baptized you would indeed then do piously to prefer christ before your impious parents for if your parents should offer to force you to do some impious scandalous thing their authority in that case were to be condemned but what is this to the case of a nunnery you have christ at home you have the dictates of nature the approbation of heaven the exhortation of saint paul and the obligations of human laws for your obedience to parents and will you now withdraw yourself from under the authority of good and natural parents to give yourself up a slave to a fictitious father rather than to your real father and a strange mother instead of your true mother and to serve masters and mistresses rather than parents for you are so under your parents direction that they would have you be at liberty wholly and therefore sons and daughters are called liberi children because they are free from the condition of servants you are now of a free woman about to make yourself voluntarily a slave the clemency of the christian religion has in a great measure cast out of the world the old bondage saving only some obscure footsteps in some few places but there is now a days found out under pretense of religion a new sort of servitude as they now live indeed in many monasteries you must do nothing there but by a rule and then all that you lose they get if you offer to step but one step out of the door you're lugged back again just like a criminal that had poisoned her father and to make the slavery yet more evident they changed the habit your parents gave you and after the manner of the slaves in old time bought and sold in the market they changed the very name that was given you in baptism and peter or john are called francis or dominic or thomas peter first gives his name up to christ and being to be entered into dominic's order he's called thomas if a military servant casts off the garment his master gave him is he not looked upon to have renounced his master and do we applaud him that takes upon him a habit that christ the master of us all never gave him he is punished more severely for the changing of it again 
than if he had a hundred times thrown away the livery of his lord and emperor which is the innocency of his mind catherine but they say it is a meritorious work to enter into this voluntary confinement eubulus that is a pharisaical doctrine st paul teaches us otherwise and will not have him that is called free make himself a servant but rather endeavour that he may be more free and this makes the servitude the worse that you may serve many masters and those most commonly fools too and debauchees and besides that they are uncertain being every now and then new but answer me this one thing i beseech you do any laws discharge you from your duty to your parents catherine no eubulus can you buy or sell an estate against your parents consent catherine no i can't eubulus what right have you then to give away yourself to i know not whom against your parents consent are you not their child the dearest and the most appropriate part of their possession catherine in the business of religion the laws of nature give place eubulus the great point of our religion lies in our baptism but the matter in question here only the changing of a habit or of such a course of life which in itself is neither good nor evil and now consider but this one thing how many valuable privileges you lose together with your liberty now if you have a mind to read pray or sing you may go into your own chamber as much and as often as you please when you have enough of retirement you may go to church hear anthems prayers and sermons and if you see any matron or virgin remarkable for piety in whose company you may get good if you see any man that is endowed with singular probity from whom you may learn what will make for your bettering you may have their conversation and you may choose that preacher that preaches christ most purely when once you come into a cloister all these things that are the greatest assistances in the promotion of true piety you lose at once catherine but in the meantime i shall not be a nun eubulus what signifies the name consider the thing itself they make their boast of obedience and won't you be praiseworthy in being obedient to your parents your bishop and your pastor whom god has commanded you to obey do you profess poverty and may not you too when all is in your parents hands although the virgins of former times were in an especial manner commended by holy men for their liberality towards the poor but they could never have given anything if they had possessed nothing nor will your charity be ever the less for living with your parents and what is there more in a convent than these a veil a linen shift turned into a stole and certain ceremonies which of themselves signify nothing to the advancement of piety and make no body more acceptable in the eyes of christ who only regards the purity of the mind catherine this is news to me eubulus but it is true news when you 
not being discharged from the government of your parents can't dispose of or sell so much as a rag or an inch of ground what right can you pretend to for disposing of yourself into the service of a stranger catherine they say that the authority of a parent does not hinder a child from entering into a religious life eubulus did you not make profession of religion in your baptism catherine yes eubulus and are not they religious persons that conform to the precepts of christ catherine they are so eubulus what new religion is that then which makes that void that the law of nature had established what the old law hath taught and the gospel approved and the apostles confirmed that is an ordinance that never came from heaven but was hatched by a company of monks in their cells and after this manner some of them undertake to justify a marriage between a boy and a girl though without the privity and against the consent of their parents if the contract be as they phrase it in words of the present tense and yet that position is neither according to the dictate of nature the law of moses or the doctrine of christ or his apostles catherine do you think then that i may not espouse myself to christ without my parents consent eubulus i say that you have espoused him already and so we all have where is the woman that marries the same man twice the question is here only about places garments and ceremonies i don't think duty to parents is to be abandoned for the sake of these things and you ought to look to it that instead of espousing christ you don't espouse somebody else catherine but i am told that in this case it is a piece of the highest sanctity even to contemn one's parents eubulus pray require these doctors to show you a text for it out of the holy scriptures that teach this doctrine and if they can't do this then bid them drink off a good large bumper of burgundian wine that they can do bravely it is indeed a piece of piety to fly from wicked parents to christ but to fly from pious parents to a monkery that is as it too often proves to fly from aught to stark naught what pity is that i pray although in old time he that was converted from paganism to christianity paid yet as great a reverence to his idolatrous parents as it was possible to do without prejudice to religion itself catherine are you then against the main institution of a monkistic life eubulus no by no means but as i will not persuade anybody against it that is already engaged in this sort of life to endeavor to get out of it so i would most undoubtedly caution all young women especially those of generous tempers not to precipitate themselves unadvisedly into that state from which there is no getting out afterwards and rather because their chastity is more in danger in a cloister than out of it and beside that you may do whatsoever is done there as well as at home catherine you have indeed urged many and very considerable arguments 
yet this affection of mine can't be removed eubulus if i can't dissuade you from it as i wish heartily i could however remember this one thing that eubulus told you beforehand in the meantime out of the love i bear you i wish your inclinations may succeed better than my counsel end of the virgin averse to matrimony by erasmus fourteen sixty six to fifteen thirty six from the colloquies of erasmus volume one